0: Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Palm Sunday, April 10th, 2022, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. At Bethphage and Bethany, on the Mount of Olives, the people rejoiced and praised God when they saw Jesus because of the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King! But as he continued down the mountain and approached Jerusalem, Jesus wept over the city, knowing that destruction was coming. If only you knew what makes for peace. What happened to Jerusalem should alarm us. We would be foolish, says Rev. David Pelegi, to not recognize God's visitation in our day and respond appropriately. Do we love and weep over our cities like Jesus? Do we care enough to pray for renewal and restoration? Deacon Aaron Imey starts the lectionary readings.
1: First one is Psalm 118 of the Hallel Psalms, often said during Passover. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. Amen. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed, pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense, and he has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and I will give thanks to the Lord. And this is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. And with bowels in hand, we join in the festival procession right up to the horns of the altar You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
2: be to God. Good morning, everyone. So our second reading is from Psalms 122. I rejoice with those who say to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes tribes go up, the tribe of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statutes given to Israel. There stand the throne of judgment, the throne of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and my friends, I will say peace be within you for the sake of the howl of the Lord our God. I will seek your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord.
3: Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Be reading from the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloak on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is he, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is the gospel of the Lord.
4: Let's pray, Father in heaven, as we focus this morning on the life of the ministry of your Son, Jesus the Messiah, the good news that uh, you've sent to each one of us, Father, we ask that uh, you'll speak to us, challenge us, Lord, call us by name, and Lord, give us grace to respond, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen i like to um, say a um, few things about the passage and um, never ever wanting to um, fall into the habit of preaching a three-point sermon when I could preach a 27 or 29-point sermon. You know, today I thought I'd go easy on everyone. <clears throat> After all, it's holy Week is beginning. And to indeed say something about the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and then contrary to every bone in my body and all my na- and my, my very nature, summarize it into three. So when considering this event, we need to consider the context of where this falls in the book of Luke. We also need to consider the place of Jerusalem. And three, we need to sometimes reorient ourselves or refocus ourselves because oftentimes as an evangelical community or conservative Protestants or those who take the scripture very seriously to our credit, <clears throat> we do focus, we do emphasize, rightly so, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Yes, all of this is very good, but sometimes we forget. That um, the gospel and salvation, by the way, are not necessarily the same thing. I believe the go- salvation is part of the gospel, but not all of the gospel. That the gospel and salvation are not about events, right? The, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Yes? They center on a person, right? And uh, the life of that person is extremely important. And as much as we want to value the death of Jesus on the cross and the work he does on the cross and the resurrection, we should also have, yes, put equal value, on all of his life, starting with the incarnation, yes, his uh, teachings, the way he lives, especially his um, emphasis on what you might call discipleship or the imitation of God, his demonstration of the kingdom of God his illustration of the kingdom of God with his parables, right? his preaching the kingdom of God, his entry into Jerusalem, and why is it so important that we um, concern ourselves with his weeping over this city, his ascension, who here, who here celebrates Ascension Day or thinks it, think of, uh, thinks it uh, important? I don't know many of us. His continuing intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. His return in glory and splendor. Well, that part we, around here, at least in Jerusalem, we get right. <laughs> yes, but all of this, right? Right. All of this should help us to focus on a person and all that that person has done is doing and will do, and not simply on events. And sometimes when we think about this entry into Jerusalem, it's simply a device, a literary device, or or just something gets Jesus to the cross. So I'd like to... um, go back to the beginning of the story because as Jesus comes up to the Mount of Olives from Jericho, he stops, he sees the city and he weeps over the city. And uh, surely, right, the Gospel of Luke, um, for the Gospel of Luke, this is um, phenomenally important. As Jerusalem is, yes, throughout the the scripture. And we read Psalm 122, which I'd like to refer to for a moment, because I think there is a connection between Psalm 122 uh, and the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Of course, we all know that uh, Psalm 122 was one of the many Psalms that were chanted by pilgrims on their way up to the temple. that it is a psalm, certainly. That in this city, that uh, all of us know very well, <clears throat> and <this> is, <clears throat> indeed, if it's a psalm of p- pilgrimage, um, keep in mind that um, the uh, word pilgrimage in Hebrew, which is a hug, right? Which is this idea of going around something. Right? This idea of making pilgrimage is uh, equally the word for uh, rejoicing. So it's not surprising that the psalmist would say, I rejoice with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So in the first verse, yes, we have an indication of what's important about the city. Right? What's important about the city is first and foremost that it is a place of the divine presence. And of course, we all hopefully understand uh, the scripture and that the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of Israel, uh, it was understood, was present throughout the world, especially present in the midst of his people or people who called upon his name. But Deuteronomy and later <clears throat> Uh, the um, book of Kings tells us that God is present here in Jerusalem uh, in a special way, not to the exclusion of being present in other places, but he is present here uh, in Jerusalem. And the psalm goes on in a very, maybe a little bit of a romantic way to praise Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. The tribes uh, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and they go up to worship, right? The, Jerusalem is the center of not only the divine presence, but the divine presence, of course, means that there's autom- virtually automatically that there, there needs to be worship, there must be worship. To praise the name of the Lord, according to the statutes given to Israel, right? According to the scripture, that um, worship worship had to be done in a certain particular way. It had to um, be done in a way that uh, um, emphasized holiness and purity. Uh, so, any old type of worship was not necessarily acceptable. There stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. So here we have this uh, 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 mention of kingship, right? This is the place where the king. This is where the king resides, and of course, it was God who. Uh, appointed the kings and then we come to our famous verse 6 which is on the front of our church pray for the peace of Jerusalem may those who love you be secure may there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels right for the sake of for the sake of my family and friends i will say peace be within you for the sake of the house of the lord our god i will seek your prosperity Right, and so here it gives us the reasons really to pray for Jerusalem, right? And that Jerusalem has this association or this connection with peace. Um, first of all, as we all know, it's in the name, Yerushalam, Yerushalayim, yes, from uh, shalom, shalem, from uh, shalom, sh- salem, shalom, uh, there's the uh, connection Uh, between the two words. And the reason that um, the psalmist is telling us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem for two reasons. This is first for the sake of my family and friends, right? I will say peace be within you for the sake of the people who live here, right? So that Jerusalem isn't just some symbol or some religious icon, but actually it's a living city, in which the psalmist is expressing concern, right, for those who do actually live in Jerusalem. And then in addition, um, perhaps even more importantly, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity, right? For the sake of the house of the Lord, right? Because this is the place of God's presence, and because this is the place of God's presence, yes, this city, right, is a gift of peace to Israel. And it's also, by the way, a gift of peace to the nations. Because we read in Isaiah that not only is, would Jerusalem be a blessing to the Jewish people or to the Israelites, but to all the nations, because this is where the, the law of the Lord, the Torah would go forth, right? Uh, from this place to all the world. And surely that happened in the book of Acts, did it not? Okay, did it? It's something very significant that uh, Jesus says, you have to start in Jerusalem and go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to all the uh, uttermost parts all the other most parts of the earth. And so, <clears throat> again, because this is the place of God's presence, this is a place where you focus on worship of the one and true and living God. And if people aren't at peace, right, if they're not living together, especially living together in peace, or there isn't peace, uh, in not only in the city, but from outside invaders, you might say, what, what witness or credibility yeah, is there then to, to the city of Jerusalem, which claims to be the center or the place of God's presence? Yes? So the psalmist is saying we need to pray, right? Because it's God being a God of peace, right surely his people should be living together in peace and in a place of reconciliation right in the very place right which which bears the presence bears the presence of god and by the way what is peace again i think we all know this but maybe it's a good reminder maybe and and just i think someone counted that in 25% of the, uh, of the times the word peace is used in the Hebrew Bible, that it has something to do with the absence of war. 65% of the time, yes, it indicates something maybe a little deeper and uh, sometimes a little harder to put our heads around. But 65% of the time, it's talking about welfare, it's talking about maturity, some kind of completeness or wholeness or well-being, even physically, materially, economically, spiritually. There's no separation between the spiritual and material, right? So the psalmist says, pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? Pray for its spiritual, physical, economic well-being. Pray for the people who live there, right? And pray, right? Because this is the very place that um, witnesses to the God of Israel, right? Witnesses to his existence. Certainly it is true, is it not, that most people in the world today and now I'm not talking about your theology. I'm talking about most people in the world today think that the city of Jerusalem has everything to do with God and everything to do with the Bible or the God of the Bible. You may say, I don't believe that. You may have that poor, unsubstantiated theology that says, God is finished with Jerusalem and everything is now happening in the church. That's irrelevant. Yeah. What's relevant is that most people, again, connect Jerusalem, just like they connect the Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Episcopal Church, right? especially those who are not believers who don't know any better. This has something to do with Christianity. And we can pout and say, I don't believe their doctrine. I don't believe they're truly Christians. But again, that doesn't matter. At the very fundamental, the very bottom line of all this is, right? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because what happens here, yes, in a way, is going to reflect how many people see and understand God, right? The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, there's the third context in all this that third context is what we read in Luke itself. And before we get to chapter 19, I think it's pretty significant that Jesus already in chapter 13, as we read a few weeks ago in the lectionary, Jesus already in chapter 13, uh, on his way to the city, as he's making his way south, when the Pharisees come and warn him and say, Jesus, Herod, that fox is after you. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop me. And then he speaks these tender words about Jerusalem, how he wants to gather, um, how he wants to gather Jerusalem um, like a mother hen. Uh, mother hen gathers his uh, gathers her chicks, and that attitude. You might say that um, tenderness towards Jerusalem is reflected in the entire Gospel of Luke. Yes, because Luke's Gospel, if you may remember, begins in the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to end in the temple. His uh, the part two of his gospel, the Book of Acts. Yes, will also begin in Jerusalem and end the. Uh, more or less in the temple or the temple area uh, itself. I hope you, maybe all of you remember when we spoke about the parents of Jesus a few months ago, that Jesus, according to Luke chapter two, came to Jerusalem with his family every year. And most peasants in Galilee, maybe they only managed to come to Jerusalem once in a lifetime, yes? But Jesus and his family made the effort to come every year and to, uh, and to visit the temple. And of course, you, we all remember the story of Jesus uh, being lost in the temple, wanting to be about his father's business uh, at a very tender, very tender age. And uh, when we come to the place of crucifixion, yes, uh, while Mark and Matthew tend to have the crowds or individuals being hostile to Jesus in his final hours, Luke draws us a picture in which there are people, many people who are sympathetic, who are beating their breasts as they see Jesus carrying his cross and saying, probably saying to themselves, there goes another righteous Jew. How much longer can we take this oppression? Yes, from these brutal pagans, the Roman Empire, my ancestors, the Italians, right? So this, you might say this attitude or this connection with Jerusalem, uh, with Jesus in Jerusalem, at least in this gospel, uh, is close. But before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, let's point out the following. He runs in, he walks through Jericho. And in Jericho, he meets little Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector, the godfather of Jericho. (laughs) Yeah, the gangster. And Zacchaeus, yes, he wasn't even Italian, but he was the mafia boss. Zacchaeus, yes, does what? Zacchaeus ends up repenting. And Zacchaeus doesn't simply repent and say, oh, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. He shows the fruit of repentance, yes, by willing to repay even willing to follow the Torah commandments, right? Because uh, according to the Old Testament, if you steal a euro, you pay back four euros. If you steal a shekel from someone, you pay back four shekels. So Zacchaeus has, has this amazing heartfelt repentance. And isn't it interesting? Jesus says, I've, I, you know, I have come to seek and save the lost, right he tells us what his mission is the son of man has come to seek to seek and save the lost you see zacchaeus recognizes his moment and he responds in the proper way but you know the context isn't in there or the context that's relevant for us isn't in there because then jesus as he makes his way uh, up to jerusalem people begin to um um Say uh, or be—they be, have this expectation that the kingdom of God is near, right? They're, they can sense something is going to happen. You know, the atmosphere is so thick you could cut it with a a chainsaw. Something is up. The air is something is stirring. Surely this Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to proclaim, him, proclaim himself king and he's going to kick out the bad guys and set up the good guys. And then Jesus has to tell a parable. And interesting, the parable is about the, the king who has the servants, um, who gives th- gives three servants some coins or gives them some capital to invest Yes, and that investment, right, that investment uh, is uh, in a way pointing to a certain faithfulness and even to a certain understanding of who the king is and what the king does, right? So here we have a context of a man who recognizes his moment. We have a context um of of this man who repents, who, who, according to Jewish society, was quite wicked and kind of on the edge of society, maybe the last person you would think to repent. Jesus has a statement, says, this is what I've come to do as the sublime, divine son of man. I've come to get myself dirty and go out and seek and save the lost. All right, as Ezekiel 34 tells us, and then we have this. Under we have a parable about faithfulness and about a country that doesn't want their king. And after all this, Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and as we read, as we read in the Gospel, he sees Jerusalem. Um, He sees Jerusalem, and he weeps. Yes, Jesus weeps over, the, he, he weeps over the city. And what are we to make of this? What are, we to, what are we to make of Jesus weeping over the city? Again, keeping in mind the context that we just mentioned, right? That these events and even these little actions that we may not consider to be important are indeed important for us. That God's, you might say, love for Jerusalem and the importance of Jerusalem, if we we only had Psalm 122, it'd be enough, but we have many more references in Scripture. And finally, this whole context, of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And so the words of Jesus um, are very telling, and they're not just relevant for Jerusalem. I think they're first and foremost relevant for us. And maybe we need to put aside the old question or the old debate why the Jews or why Jerusalem rejected Jesus, and we perhaps need to focus and apply this to the current situation in which we live right, to the places where we, you know, where we live today. Yes and all we come from, certainly come from all over the world because these words are relevant, not simply for Jerusalem, but I believe that they're indeed relevant for us. So first, when Jesus weeps, okay, it is a reminder, I hope it's a reminder to all of us that Jesus loves his city and that he loves his people that he's attached, right? He's attached to his people. He's attached to his city. He's weeping because he can foresee that Jerusalem is on the road to disaster, right? Uh, In fact, Jesus probably performs, (sighs) Jesus here is in the, you might say, in the line or the tradition of the Old Testament prophet because the prophets of the Old Testament weren't there simply to tell the future, although that happened in passing. The prophets were um, sent by God to give guidance and direction and instruction to his people in the present moment, usually in their crisis or in their confusion. And it was once said by some very wise American Jewish theologian, that actually what a prophet does is that he expresses God's heart for any given situation, right? If you truly want to know what a prophet does, he expresses God's heart for any given situation. You might say it's looking in, right, uh, to, to what God thinks, or what God might, if we can use the word, feels about this situation. Remember that uh, when the people, um, that God is a God who dwells with us in our distress. He's present with us in our trouble. He also rejoices over us with singing. Yes, that he's intimately involved with us, right? And it certainly hits always his desire to save his people and to keep us from disaster. And surely Jesus, with this prophetic ministry, right, and this prophetic call to repentance, is doing the same with Jerusalem. Okay, Again, Jesus doesn't only come to Jerusalem to die and to rise again, but he also comes as a prophet to teach and to warn his people, and by the way, that warning and that teaching is applicable to us, just as it was to them two thousand years ago. So let's not think only in historic, you know, in the historic past. And so the words of Jesus, I think, are more than instructive. At least I hope they are to us. And he says, um, he he saw the city in verse forty-two. He wept over it. He said, if, if you, even you, had known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Now, what is gonna bring people peace? And why is it that peace is so important? Yes, what is going to bring peace? And I think the standard evangelical answer goes like this. Oh, Jerusalem rejected Jesus. They didn't accept him. Yes, they didn't accept him, and so they, destruction happened, dispersion happened. Never mind the fact that the Jewish people were already dispersed. Okay, but that's sort of a that's sort of an anti that's sort of a misunderstanding in our teaching and preaching. Right? Jews didn't accept Jesus, so God had to destroy the temple and disperse the people. And so, when the temple was destroyed, Jews got in their boats and they sailed off to North America, and they became Indians, or they sailed off to they sailed off to Denmark and they became part of the tribe of Dan, and they went to um, Antarctica and they became Eskimos. No, the Jewish people were most of the Jewish people lived outside this country, even uh, even in the year seventy. So, but what is it? And here I think we have to be really kind of self-critical. It's not that, it's not only you're accepting Jesus. That's a wonderful beginning. Accept Jesus. That's a great starting point. But, but my dear friends, there are millions of people in this world right now who accept Jesus. They say he's Lord. They say he's Savior. And uh, also millions of us who really don't take his life and his teachings seriously. And we don't implement them. And so we have a war today between two so-called Christian countries. That's bringing horrible results. Yes, the majority of people in both countries, and I'm not blaming the country that, that has been attacked, <clears throat> but the majority of, of these, uh, both countries claim to be Christian. And I'm not pointing my finger at one church because all churches do this, even in evangelical United States, where people say yes, yes, yes to Jesus, but in actual fact, have we implemented, yes, what he's taught us to do? Again, the teachings of Jesus are important. All right? And so Jerusalem, what would bring Jerusalem peace? Just saying yes to Jesus? or living out the gospel, which is a message of reconciliation and forgiveness and of healing and of uh, uh, combating uh, what is evil or combating uh, the power of Satan. But you can say, what about the cross? It's the cross and the resurrection that ultimately make those things possible. Right? Right? But still, nonetheless, right it's again uh, putting into practice yes, what Jesus taught, and Jerusalem a generation after Jesus, um, and this according to the official Jewish version of events, because on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, which falls sometime in early August, late July. Yes, there's a day of national repentance in Israel and amongst Jewish people everywhere. And they will say that the temple was destroyed and that uh, Jerusalem fell because of causeless hatred, meaning because one sectarian group was fighting and killing another sectarian group inside the city while the Romans surrounded Jerusalem. Yes, so it uh, it was this kind of internal hatred Right? within a society that uh, brought the, the collapse or the end. And I surely believe that Jesus could foresee this. And by the way, this is a warning to us in many Western countries where we're becoming so polarized, where the left hates the right, and there's such a vicious, vicious, viciousness or bitterness as between different uh, political and cultural points of view. But Jesus then goes on to talk about the city, how it will, um, the city, how it will be destroyed, and the, all of these are phrases that he takes from the Old Testament, um, and he says the following: They will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, right? And that's where I think, again, this is relevant. Right, Jerusalem doesn't recognize the time of God's visitation. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus in the most awkward position, climbing that sycamore tree. Yes, by the way, shikmah, which is the word for sycamore in Hebrew, means renewal, right? What's going to bring Zacchaeus' renewal? His repentance. But the fact that also he recognized the moment and sees the moment of God's grace and God's visitation. And sometimes I think, you know, do we, right? Do we see that moment, All right, When God is visiting us, God is speaking to us, the Holy Spirit might be convicting us personally, as a family, as a church, even times as a nation, right? Or do we ignore it? Or do we dither and say, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Let's not be too extreme. Let's not be too radical. After all, what will the neighbors think? (laughs) But if we do recognize the time of God's visitation, or we do hear God speaking to us, then the response is like one of Zacchaeus. It's, It's repentance. Right? It's real repentance. It's not simply saying, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it won't happen again. But it's repentance, a change of mind that's always accompanied by a turnaround in behavior. Yes, it's a U-turn. And we act and live differently, and if necessary, we make compensation. And that's the challenge, I think, you know, to our societies. Yes, that's a challenge to us personally. If we say yes to Jesus, are we willing to implement, yes, with his help and his grace and the power of the Spirit? Yes, are we willing to be intentional about our discipleship and to follow him, yes, in a way that's going to bring peace? Now, Jesus dies for our sins. I want it to be clear. Jesus dies to conquer death. Jesus dies to defeat the devil. All of that is true. But I'd also like to remind you that Jesus also dies, right? To bring peace between people. When Peter meets Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he says to Cornelius, Jesus came to preach peace. And he's saying that to a Gentile. A Jew is saying that to a Gentile, but these two groups were hostile to each other. In the book of Ephesians, we have chapter one that tells us about our peace with God. Wonderful, but we also have chapter two that tells us about um, our peace, yes, with with different groups or different people in the Messiah, in the faith, who don't think like us or who don't look like us or don't have the same political ideology or the same customs as we do, right? So that's part of the message of the gospel. And what I'd like you to notice in all of this is that Jesus and this great, great love for Jerusalem? Yes. Uh, not only has this message, but what's interesting, there's no sentimentality. There's no romantic view of Jerusalem, like let's wave flags and, <clears throat> you know, let's cry over these stones. Yeah. There is a love for Jerusalem and there's a love for the people. And by the way, the love for the people that Jesus exhibited. You know, it's not this kind of love is, I find with so many folks who come here and visit. They don't really love or care for the people so much. Jerusalem's just kind of like a a chess piece on the chessboard. And somehow if you move Jerusalem uh, in this direction or that direction, it's some kind of game and it's going to maybe bring the Messiah soon or uh, people will callously talk about this erroneous misinterpretation of scripture and they'll walk around and they'll tell Israelis, you know, according to the Bible, two thirds of you are going to die in a great slaughter. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? Who would love anyone and say such a thing, which by the way, is, is again, based on a misinterpretation of scripture or, you know, so again, whether it's the psalmist in 122 or whether it's Jesus on the top of the mount of olives there is a love for people right there's a and it's not utilitarian and it's not romantic right which i believe should be the same love we have for, for the people in our city even if they're engaging in wickedness or evil in addition it's not vindictive jesus i mean this is a city that rejects jesus And going to, he's going to be crucified in this city, not by the people, especially in Luke's gospel, but by a few religious uh, types um, and the Italians who are here. Jews and Gentiles are going to put Jesus on the cross. But you don't. What does Jesus do? Not only does he cry over the city. uh, A few a few verses later, when he's carrying his cross. He's, he, he warns the women of Jerusalem, he's in great pain, he's in great suffering, he's not focused on his own issues. He's saying, I wanna warn you that what's happening to me is bad, but what's gonna to happen to you is worse. I mean, in his last breath, he's trying to teach and warn as a prophet. And then he's put on the cross, and what does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. In all of these ways, he's expressing a love. That's not a lack of vindictiveness. And and by the way, it's not even God who's vindictive. God's not a vindictive God here. He's not a mean God who sometimes, you know, just wait. You can't wait to punish, you know, his people. It's simply that God sometimes, in his own mysterious ways, allows us to reap what we sow. He allows us to reap what we sow. And in most cases, I think in maybe every case, that is what we call judgment in the Bible. Reaping what we as a side. Sometimes it doesn't happen, and sometimes it does. Yes, sometimes it does. And so... I think this is, again, I would hope that this is our, our understand. Uh, uh, you might say, our focus or refocus uh, on this small incident of the, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus weeping, weeping over his city. And I think the place that we begin to weep is that first and foremost, that we should weep over our churches. And then we can weep over those who are not in the church. Yes. And uh, we can um, pray for them as um, God tells Jeremiah in chapter 27. Right? We all know Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But what happens when people, uh, the people of God, go into exile What does God say to them? Chapter 27 of Jeremiah. You remember? He says, go to to Babylon. Babylon, the enemy. Yes, go to Babylon. Have children. Get married. Plant gardens. And work for the welfare. The word in Hebrew is shalom. Work for the welfare of your city. And then the Lord says, and pray for it. Pray for it. So we're all glad you're praying for Jerusalem. We hope you continue, and to pray for the people who live in this city, and to pray that uh, the city indeed bears witness to God, uh, with its name, and its history, and even its future. But we also hope and trust that you'll be praying for your city. And that's our time of intercession today. Yes, time of intercession today is that we are going to pray for our different cities, right? We're going to pray implicitly that uh, each of us, uh, each of our cities would recognize the time of God's visitation and would repent and, as probably brought out by that parable, continue in a way of faithfulness. Right, all these things are found lacking in Jerusalem. By the way, before we end, I would like to end on a positive note for Jerusalem. Right, just before, or just before the death of Jesus, he gives the, the you might say, the talk on the Mount of Olives, in which he talks about the end days, and he says to, about Jerusalem, he says Jerusalem will be smashed and trampled down and be under oppression until the time of the Gentiles come to an end, right? So God's not finished with Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem gets a second chance. And I think all of us uh, knowing God's mercy and God's grace can ask for a second chance. Even when we, our families, our churches, our cities have failed, yes, we can once again ask God in his mercy to return and visit us again and give us that grace, right, that overwhelming uh, desire, right, to turn uh, and and to um, once more commit ourselves to him.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.